as Clark just said, I've just recently transitioned from Japan. I will be the assistant professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient Israelite culture and history at the University of Pennsylvania um, starting this fall semester. So tonight I'll be talking to you about biblical criticism and how we can uh, think through it and approach it as Christians. I'm going to share my slides now and I'll also kill my video just so we don't lose too much bandwidth. Right. Oh yeah, that's very clear. Okay, is that coming through better? Yes. Great. <clears throat> so biblical criticism at least used to be a uh, popular if contentious topic among Christians, though interest has kind of waned recently, although you find pockets of people still interested in this. And the reason I've chosen this is that I could be called a biblical critic myself. Um, so I just said, I'm a professor of Hebrew Bible, so criticism is something that I get into. Uh, but I'm also a committed Christian who believes the Bible to be the inspired word of God. So I've spent a lot of years thinking about how my convictions and my career fit together. Um, and this is a tough fit. I won't lie about that. Um, it takes some working through. Um, but tonight I'll be sharing uh, a few of my thoughts with you about how I think criticism can actually benefit our faith rather than be something that we have to treat as an adversary. But I think we should start off uh, by defining what we'll be talking about. Now, broadly speaking, biblical criticism is a catch-all term for multiple fields that engage in the academic study of the Bible. Um, I also need to make an important caveat. I'll be using the word biblical criticism because this is what we often hear it called in Christian contexts. Uh, but that term is actually used very sparingly in the fields that it's used to describe. Um, generally today, you'll more often hear the term biblical studies. Um, and also, despite this generic biblical studies or biblical criticism, um, we have many disciplines, for example, scholars of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament almost never do both. I've never met anyone who could do both. Um, personally, I study the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. If anyone is interested in the distinction between those terms, I can talk about it later. I won't get into it right now, um, but I'll be focusing on that side uh, of criticism this evening. I can make some very broad remarks on New Testament scholarship, but again, I'm not trained in that, uh, so I won't be getting into that tonight. Another thing to be aware of is that biblical criticism or biblical studies looks very different depending on where you are doing it. Uh, in North America, biblical studies generally entails studying the Bible apart from any theological perspective. So the separation of church and state over here tends to extend to the academy. And so theology and biblical criticism have largely gone their separate ways. That's generally not the case in Europe, uh, which is another sort of giant in the field. Um, although theology isn't at the forefront of their work, you'll usually find it in an epilogue. Uh, Israel, the modern country, um, has been increasingly a uh, fruitful contributor to biblical studies. They tend to follow the North American train of thought, um, although you will see a sort of uh, Zionist undercurrent there. Um, some of you might wonder what biblical criticism looks like in Asia, where I'm just coming from. 
Uh, in places like Singapore, Korea, and Japan, it's often done from an explicitly Christian perspective. Scholarship from China, of course, tends to be more secular. Uh, unfortunately, those schools of thought remain mostly cut off from the rest of the world. And we won't worry too much about that geography for the rest of the lecture. I just wanted to bring that up to highlight that biblical criticism is diverse, and it can look very different depending on where you're doing it. Now, I'm a North American biblical critic, so I'm going to focus on that tradition um, and how I believe it can be of value to Christians despite its general ignorance of theology. So what do biblical critics actually study? Well, generally, these fields are highly specialized forms of cultural anthropology. So a biblical scholar can engage in literary study of the Bible, philological or linguistic study of biblical languages, um, and even archaeological study of the times and places where the Bible was written and originally received. Now, for my own part, I like to use methods like sociolinguistics, cognitive science, and art history to shed new light on the people who produced the Bible. I'm especially interested in their material culture, as mentioned in the introduction. And I think these things can provide fresh insights into biblical texts. What's most important to note for now, though, is that biblical criticism is not simply theology or exegesis without God. It's actually a completely different realm of expertise. Biblical critics, if we're going to keep calling them that, study aspects of the Bible that theologians generally don't. And this is why I would argue biblical criticism can be beneficial for Christians. It provides insights into the Bible that theological study alone cannot. And this is not because theology is inferior in any way, but simply because it's a different field altogether. Theologians generally use the Bible to learn about God and especially his plan for redemption. Biblical critics use the Bible to learn about the humans that God related to in the past. What were their cultural assumptions? How did they live from day to day? What languages did they speak? How did those languages change over time? What other literature did those people know? And is that literature reflected in the Bible? In short, biblical criticism is anthropology. Its explicit aim is to study humans. Honest biblical criticism makes no claims positive or negative about God, but we'll get to that in a second. So biblical criticism is not better or worse than theology, I would argue. It's simply a completely different field. Now, that all said, many Christians find biblical criticism hard to engage with. Now, on the one hand, unfortunately, this difficulty uh, partially stems from the animosity that's sometimes shown to Christians by biblical scholars. I'm sorry to say that I have witnessed that attitude, sometimes in teaching contexts. Generally, I don't find those perspectives in published work uh, because they would be uh, unacceptable to most editors nowadays. Now, on the other hand, uh, this difficulty can also stem from sort of hypersensitivity uh, among Christians. And I'll share just a brief anecdote to illustrate this. So when I was doing my PhD at UCLA, I was part of a graduate Bible study through RUF. It's Reformed University Fellowship. It's a campus fellowship uh, run by the Presbyterian Church in America or the PCA. Now, one day the campus minister told me that two RUF members were taking a class in my department and they felt that their faith was being attacked in that class. 
Now, I knew that there were two lecturers in my department who taught that class, and one of them could be quite antagonistic. I figured he must have been who those students had run into, but I asked uh, the minister to tell me the, the lecturer's name, and it ended up being the other lecturer who just so happened to be a conservative Christian. Uh, and not only that, he was an elder in the PCA, the same denomination that these students belonged to. Uh, I'd seen him lecture um, and he tended to describe biblical scholarship in the third person, never taking those positions for himself. The students simply misunderstood those descriptions as prescriptions and read it as an attack. Um, they were responding in an overly sensitized way, seeing him attacking their faith, which he actually shared in common with them. Uh, now, interestingly, at least at UCLA, this isn't true at all secular institutions. Many of the faculty are Christian, uh, and even the other lecturer who could come off as antagonistic to Christians was Christian himself. He once received a negative comment on a class review in which the student remarked, I just wish that he loved Jesus. This led him to angrily remark to all of his TAs in full hearing of the rest of the department, I do love Jesus. I'm a Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> All this to say that there doesn't need to be an antagonistic relationship between Christians and biblical critics, uh, but both Christians and biblical scholars, especially Christian biblical scholars in secular contexts, uh, could stand to work on this relationship. Now, more importantly, Christians can learn a lot from biblical critics that will encourage them in their faith. Uh, how do I know this? Because I'm a biblical critic myself, as I said before. I study the Bible from an anthropological perspective in a secular context. I'm also a Christian and an active lay member of my church, and I see no contradiction between the, these things. On the contrary, being a biblical critic has strengthened my faith, and my faith has made me a better critic. So to explain how biblical criticism has enhanced my faith, um, I want to cover three common difficulties experienced by Christians when they encounter biblical criticism. Uh, I call these the problem of contradiction, the problem of originality, the problem of inspiration. And then I'll finish uh, with how I would reframe biblical criticism in theological terms and how I would accept or suggest approaching these fields from a Christian perspective. So again, uh, for the rest of the lecture, I'll talk about the problem of contradiction, problem of originality, problem of inspiration, and then reclaiming criticism uh, for the church. And these sections will get progressively uh, shorter as we go on. So don't get scared after the long contradiction <laughs> section. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the accusation that the Bible contradicts itself. A quick Google search suggests that there are 101 contradictions in the Bible. I'm sure various people have different counts. Um, and growing up, I heard plenty of stories about university professors pointing out contradictions in the Bible to undermine Christianity. Uh, some of those interactions were misconstrued, as in the anecdote I shared before, but this has happened. Although more often, I find nowadays that it's uh, members of the public uh, who dabble in biblical criticism rather than the scholars themselves that tend to be using contradictions as a form of attack. But are these contradictions really there? Uh, I try to take a high view of scripture and let the Bible speak for itself in its own terms. Um, and for me, that means I don't really like to harmonize things away. Some people are more into harmonization. It's not really something I like to do if I can avoid it. 
Um, so my answer is going to actually be yes. We do find some contradictions, but why? What are these contradictions and how should be, we be uh, responding to them? Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on two types of contradictions in the Bible. I'll call these historical contradictions and logical contradictions. Now, historical contradictions tend to be minor details in the Bible that disagree with extra biblical sources. Logical contradictions would be better called paradoxes. In these cases, the Bible seems to make two incompatible statements, at least from a modern perspective, though I would suggest that they weren't necessarily incompatible originally. But let's start with historical contradictions. So does the Bible contradict extra biblical records? The short answer is yes, but we should take some time to consider why. I'll give you uh, two examples tonight. The account of Xerxes in the book of Esther and the account of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Esther is unusually concerned with some minute details about the reign of the Persian emperor Xerxes. Let's just read the first three verses of the book to get a taste of this. So this is Esther 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Now, for a long time, scholars had difficulty with passages like these because they contradict what we know from Greek sources, which for a long time were our only historical sources for the Persian Empire. The old Persian language, where we should expect to find our most direct historical sources, was only deciphered in the 19th century, uh, and many documents in the language weren't recovered and studied until the 21st. So we didn't have access to Persian sources for a long time. And many scholars still ignore them today because they don't know Old Persian, as I happen to. <laughs> uh, for example, the Bible actually gives this king a different name. Recent translations have Xerxes, uh, but in Hebrew it says Ahasuerus, which used to be transliterated as Ahasuerus. I believe you still have this in the King James, some descendant translations. Our Greek sources record no such king ever ruling. So Esther was judged to be a fictional account. But then we discovered native Persian sources, which speak of a king named Skayarsha, uh, as we can read on this vase I have pictured here. Now I won't get into the linguistic weeds, but it's very easy to demonstrate that the Hebrew Ahasuerosh was the Hebrew scribe's best attempt at rendering this uh, impossible to pronounce Persian name for a Hebrew speaker into Hebrew. Meanwhile, for the Greeks, Xerxes was the best that they could do in their language. The Hebrew and Greek look very different, but both can easily be derived from this Persian original. So there wasn't any contradiction here. We just lacked sources. Uh, the same is true of the setting of Esther, which is another thing scholars took issue with. Esther was judged fictional because it imagines Xerxes ruling in Susa when we know from Greek sources that his capital was actually at Persepolis. Persian sources, however, reveal that Susa was a secondary royal city and that Xerxes was specifically active there during the third year of his reign, which is precisely the year that the Book of Esther is concerned with. 
So sometimes we find historical contradictions have to do with the sources we're using to identify contradictions. And this reveals a larger issue in biblical studies that is worth calling out. So we'll often find a general bias that privileges non-biblical sources over biblical ones when we're looking at historical details of the ancient world. Now, it is true that the Bible is not first and foremost a history book. It's not history for history's sake. Biblical accounts generally only relate as many details as are relevant to make larger theological points. So we shouldn't be surprised to find some details missing. But the same is true of extra biblical sources. Our Greek sources only report details they consider relevant or considered relevant to their Greek audience. And those were filtered through Greek cultural biases. Now, in a secular context, an honest scholar should hold that the Greek and biblical sources have the same historical value and that they both provide a limited, although different, perspective on Persian history. And we should be unsurprised that they choose different details to relate and relate them in different ways. Now, the fact that many scholars disregard the biblical accounts exposes a lack of intellectual integrity, and some recent uh, secular publications have argued as much. Now, this is one reason why we encounter historical contradictions in the Bible, a lack of imagination on the part of scholars. Not all such contradictions can be explained away like this, though. And with that, I turn to my personal favorite example of a historical contradiction, and that's the account of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar left Babylon and went into the wilderness for a number of years. He subsequently professed to worship a single God. He's shown praising the God of the Bible. And in the meantime, the Bible tells us that a man named Belshazzar, the king's son, ruled in his place. Now, Babylonian sources record no such events, at least not for Nebuchadnezzar. And it actually was a very long time before we ever discovered uh, Belshazzar in the sources. Um, but more recent sources do tell us that one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, Nabonidus, left Babylon for around a decade and went into the wilderness. During and after this time, Nabonidus let the major cults of Babylon fall derelict because he was only interested in worshiping one god, uh, whom the Babylonian sources name Sin, and they're very unhappy with. Uh, and while Nabonidus was away, his son, whom the Babylonian sources, like this one pictured, called Belshazzar, ruled in his place. So what's going on here? I've seen some Christians try to argue that the contradictions don't mean anything. It just must be the case that both Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus left Babylon, went into the wilderness, left sons in charge who were both named Belshazzar, and subsequently became quasi-monotheists. I don't think this is the best solution. Instead, I would suggest that the story in Daniel is actually about Nabonidus, and a later scribe who wasn't familiar with that king copied the name wrong and replaced it with that of a more famous king. And in Hebrew, these names differ by only a few letters, so it's not that big of a change. So this, at least when we're looking at the manuscripts we have uh, available to us, does seem to be a real historical contradiction. But how do we make sense of it? Well, I'd like to point out two things. First, this really doesn't matter. Whichever king this story is about makes no difference in the Bible's doctrine of salvation. When scholars say there are 101 contradictions in the Bible or whatever number they bring up, 
most of those contradictions are things like this, names that were copied incorrectly, misspelled words or numbers that were garbled in translation. And these things don't make any difference to the truth of the Bible. Now, the second thing this sort of contradiction gives us a chance to reflect on is our doctrine of inerrancy. Now, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, for instance, is very careful to say that the original manuscripts of the Bible were inerrant. Article 10 reads, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text. And this is what the Chicago Statement calls the original manuscripts of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great, but not perfect, accuracy. And we further affirm that copies and translation of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. And we further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Now, as this statement admits, none of those original autographs have been preserved, unfortunately. Our earliest full manuscript of the Old Testament, for example, dates to 900 AD at least a millennium after the last biblical books were written. And given that great gap in time, it's quite impressive that counts of contradictions stay as low as 101. Now, while things like the Chicago Statement argue, correctly in my opinion, that the biblical text has largely been preserved, it does allow that some small errors may have entered the text in the course of transmission by fallible human beings. And I would say this is why we find examples like this in Daniel, where the original king's name has been swapped out for another. Now, admitting that things like this are errors in no way contradicts the Bible's teachings on salvation, and I would argue it doesn't even contradict biblical inerrancy. Our faith can accommodate small discrepancies like this. But what can biblical criticism contribute here? Well, rather than approaching it as an adversary, it actually helps us to reconcile with small errors like this. One of the sub-disciplines of biblical criticism is textual criticism by which scholars compare different manuscripts to ascertain what may have been the original text, which again is lost to us. Now, while the later manuscripts of Daniel that our translations are based on get the name of this king wrong, the fragments of Daniel that have been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls pictured here correctly name the king Nabonidus. It's mm -hmm. only the manuscripts uh, that are used for our translations that have Nebuchadnezzar. I think we can confidently conclude that the original autographs, as the Chicago Statement calls them, included the name Nabonidus rather than Nebuchadnezzar. So biblical criticism tells us that this historical contradiction exists only in later manuscripts. We need not assume that it existed in the original biblical texts. Now, scholars also point to a number of logical contradictions in the Bible. Now, this is the kind of contradiction most often exploited by biblical critics. This sort of scholarship is almost the foundation of the field. It's also incredibly problematic for cultural and historical reasons. Now here, it would be remiss of me not introduce you to the most famous subfield within biblical criticism, and that is source criticism. Now, source criticism seeks out logical contradictions, among other things, and argues that they must be mistakes and the result of literary compositing. So in other words, a logical contradiction indicates that multiple sources were used and somewhat crudely jammed together to produce a biblical text. You might be familiar with this kind of work under the name of the documentary hypothesis or the JEDP theory. 
This theory is most famously attributed to a scholar named Julius Wellhausen, pictured here, though he didn't actually come up with it. Now, a lot of biblical criticism widely disseminated to the public follows this sort of pattern. But I should note for you that this kind of scholarship has actually fallen out of favor in the academy. There's very few scholars who still hold this view. It's remained popular among the public for a variety of reasons, uh, but most biblical critics reject this kind of work. And that's because it has some major issues, academically speaking. Now, most importantly, arguing that logical contradictions must be mistakes or the result of literary compositing assumes that ancient Israel shared our literary and cultural values, especially the law of non-contradiction. But the law of non-contradiction originates with Plato, hundreds of years after the Old Testament was written. Now, on the contrary, the Bible indicates that Israel possessed a very rich, independent philosophical tradition that utilized contradiction, or better paradox, as a means of instruction. I'll give just two examples. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5, we read, There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands. Only a few verses later in Deuteronomy 15, 11, we read, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. So which is it? Are there poor people in the land or aren't there? Now, some of you likely already see that there isn't much at issue here, but these kinds of hairs uh, are exactly what scholars like to split. So let's split them for the sake of argument. Now, a source critic might argue that Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5 and 15, 11 were written at different times by different scribes and jammed together by still another scribe called a redactor who didn't notice that the resultant text contradicted itself. Now, even if we accepted source criticism though, no one actually argues this about Deuteronomy 15. It's generally considered a pretty clean passage. And yet we have this inconsistency. Why? Uh, N.T. Wright has spoken on this specific paradox, and I think he has the right of it. Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5 is describing an ideal situation, the actual result if God's commandments were fully kept. Deuteronomy 15, 11 reminds us that we are sinful. We cannot and will not perfectly keep God's law. As a result, there will always be poor people among us, though there technically need not be. These two contrasting ideas are stated together to teach us something deeper about human sinfulness and God's law. Now, this approach, too, is a form of biblical criticism, but instead of using our cultural values as the starting point, which tends to be the case in much source criticism, this sort of scholarship assumes that the text made sense in its original cultural context and then asks how it made sense. In other words, we don't respond to logical contradictions by assuming that they could never have made sense and must be mistakes, and we don't necessarily jump to harmonize them to make them fit our current cultural assumptions. Instead, we ask, why is this paradox here? What could it be teaching us? I'll give just one more example that's even starker than the first. Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 reads, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. 
Now, there's no getting around the fact that Proverbs is a composite book containing sayings from multiple teachers, including figures like Solomon, Amenemope, Lemuel's mother, and the scholars of Hezekiah. But we don't use contradictions to identify those sources. In this case, even if we didn't believe this was the inspired word of God, it's still obvious that this was no accident. This is a paradox stated to teach us something deeper about wisdom and folly. And this style of teaching appears to be one of the hallmarks of the ancient Israelite philosophical tradition, which used paradoxes to point the learner to truths that couldn't be stated propositionally. And with that, I will turn to our second challenge. The next problem Christians face when engaging biblical criticism concerns the Bible's originality. Now, a lot of work in biblical criticism from the past century as centered on finding parallels to biblical texts from other cultures, which have newly become accessible to us thanks to the painstaking work of archeologists and philologists. This is the sort of work that I do for the most part. But what do these parallels mean for the Bible? Was the Bible based on something else? Let's examine this using the example of the flood story. Well, probably at least some of you are familiar with the Mesopotamian flood story. The Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, includes a story about a massive flood brought by the gods to destroy humanity. Uh, behind here is a, a picture of a tablet containing the story of the flood housed in the Penn Museum. It's an obligatory inclusion. Uh, one righteous man is selected to survive the flood, and he does so by building a large boat and taking on board his immediate family and a bunch of animals. Now it's strikingly similar to the story of Noah, but it was written centuries earlier. Now, I've met multiple Christians who struggle with this. What do we do when we have something so similar appearing outside the Bible? How do we countenance this, especially when that extra biblical source is undoubtedly the older one? There's a short answer to this and a long answer. I'll give you both of them. The short answer is that no doctrinal statement of inspiration ever lists originality as a feature of God's revelation. I'll just share my personal favorite statement on inspiration, though you can find many others. This is from the Westminster Confessions chapter on scripture, which argues that the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Now notice that originality and uniqueness are never mentioned here. In fact, I've never seen it listed in such a doctrinal statement. Now, the Bible is unique in its divine origin. It's also unique in its doctrine of salvation. But is it unique in its literary language and depictions? Well, not necessarily. Now, must it be the source of similar stories we find in other cultures? Again, not necessarily. Originality is no measure of biblical authority. So we have no reason to be threatened when it turns out that the Bible borrows things from elsewhere. Now, that short answer isn't the most satisfying, but here's my expansion on it. Now, assuming that the Bible was wholly original, would actually run counter to the Christian doctrine of revelation, more specifically to the doctrine known as condescension or accommodation. Now, for those interested in going deeper, this doctrine is highlighted in the Chicago Statement that I referenced before, 
And it was also a key theme in the work of theologians like John Calvin, Gerhardus Voss, and St. Ephraim the Syrian. Um, I heartily commend their writings to you for a fuller discussion. We will talk about this a little bit later in the lecture. Uh, but for now, I would summarize the doctrine of accommodation as saying that God revealed himself in ways that could be understood by his original audience. Now, often we discuss this in relation to language. God revealed himself to Israel in the languages they spoke, many of which we now call Hebrew. He revealed himself in the New Testament using the contemporary lingua franca, which was Greek. But language isn't enough to make yourself understood. You also have to understand things like idioms, cultural assumptions and references, and historical settings. If I wanted to go to Japan, for example, and preach the gospel, I can't just plug a tract into translation software and expect good results. I need to think carefully about how to present these ideas in that culture in a way that will make sense and not necessarily or unnecessarily offend people. Francis Schaeffer captured this really well in his book, Escape from Reason, writing every generation of Christians has this problem of learning how to speak meaningfully to its own age. It cannot be solved without an understanding of the changing existential situation which it faces. If we are to communicate the Christian faith effectively, therefore, we must know and understand the thought forms of our own generation. These will differ slightly from place to place and more so from nation to nation. Now, the doctrine of accommodation argues that God did the same thing when originally revealing himself to his people. He accommodated his message to their understanding as it was limited by their historical and cultural setting. So what's this have to do with originality? Well, if God was trying to make himself easily understood, the last thing we should expect is for the Bible to be fully original or unique. Instead, it should be leveraging cultural and historical references to make its point most clearly. So let's return to the flood story. Why come up with a totally unique description of a flood when you can model that story on another one that's been circulating in the region for hundreds of years? Use that other story to structure your own, and suddenly you've got everyone on the same page. Then the way your story differs from the other one will stand out in starker contrast. Now, the Mesopotamian flood story, for example, ends with the gods starving because no humans are left to offer them sacrifices. They have to relent because otherwise they'll die off. The God of the Bible suffers no such weakness. He brings about the end of the flood simply because he chooses to, promising that he would never destroy the world in like fashion again, though he technically leaves the possibility open of destroying it in a new way. And because the other elements of the story are mostly the same between the two, what stands out is the different natures of deity. The Mesopotamian gods are recast by the story of Noah as weak. The Israelite God, on the other hand, is depicted as uniquely powerful. He's also uniquely loving in allowing humanity to survive solely out of his own grace rather than his need, as was the case for the Mesopotamian gods. This is the sort of insight biblical criticism utilizing these extra biblical sources can shed on the story. Far from detracting from the Bible's uniqueness, admitting that it isn't wholly original, actually emphasizes how unique the Bible is in much higher contrast. 
by acknowledging what was borrowed, these cultural references that were likely easily understood by the original audience, we see what it is that God was communicating about himself as being different from the gods of the surrounding cultures. And with that, I'll turn to our final challenge, the challenge of inspiration. You will encounter some scholars who mistakenly assume that their research somehow precludes the Bible's own narrative about its divine origins. Some Christians get taken in by these arguments, assuming that biblical criticism somehow challenges the Bible's authority. This may be the main source of animosity between Christians and biblical criticism. There's two major problems with these arguments, though. The first is an academic issue. The second is a theological one. Academically speaking, the idea that biblical criticism disproves inspiration is a category mistake. It presents a false dichotomy. Now, as I said above, biblical critics are anthropologists. They can tell us about people, but their methods allow them to say nothing about God, and the honest one will readily admit that. So can any conclusion of biblical criticism challenge the doctrine of inspiration? The short answer is a resounding no. Arriving at this answer doesn't require that we ignore or gainsay biblical critics. It just requires acknowledging what their methods can and cannot do. No empirical method can demonstrate this divine inspiration in a text or its absence. God is transcendent, so studying him is a matter of metaphysics in one sense. So scholars of the material world, like biblical critics, have no tools for observing him. We leave that to the theologians because that's their field. Now, as a biblical critic myself, <clears throat> I'm committed to academic integrity. And this means that I'll follow the evidence I find to its most logical conclusion. I won't cover things up or explain them away. And I can do that competently because I know that none of the methods I use can say one thing positive or negative about inspiration. The Bible is inspired, case closed. The questions of who wrote it, when, where, how, and even why generally have no bearing on the fact of its inspiration. Now, that said, sometimes the conclusions of biblical criticism run counter to tradition, but we must remember that tradition is not always a flawless reading of scripture. Of course, there are conclusions of biblical criticism that do contradict scripture, and those are ones I think we should openly challenge. Of course, biblical critics are also ready to tell you that all of our conclusions are tentative. We've done the best we could with the data and methods that we have, but many of us will readily change our positions if new data or better methods come to light. <clears throat> now, theologically speaking, the idea that studying the human origins of scripture somehow excludes the possibility of a divine origin is a gross misunderstanding of Christianity's doctrine of inspiration. Now, it is true that there's some diversity in Christian understandings of inspiration, uh, but what I find to be the historical position held from the early church to the modern day is that God superintended the human production of scripture. God so prepared and moved human writers that they wrote his words, and yet they did so in his own words. Returning again to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, Article 8 reads, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. 
We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. God didn't override the humans responsible for producing the Bible. They wrote it in their own words, and yet, by a process that is mysterious to us, they simultaneously wrote God's word. <clears throat> so if biblical critics manage to prove the human origin of scripture, they are in no way disproving its divine origin. Instead, they're just proving one half of our doctrine of inspiration, the anthropological half, showing that the Bible is of human origin in no way precludes its divine origin, because these things are non-contradictory in Christianity. This is just the sort of paradox our faith is built on. We worship a God who is both one and three, revealed to us in the, as the fully divine and fully human Jesus, who died and yet is alive to make us righteous, though we are sinful, and all this communicated to us through a Bible that is of both divine and human origin. Rightly understood, biblical criticism doesn't diminish our understanding of scripture. Rather, as Jock McGregor once said to me at the Minnesota Libri, it should make us more amazed at how God moved these various humans and their circumstances to produce his word. And with that, I'll turn to my own take on approaching biblical criticism as a Christian and how I think biblical criticism can be reclaimed for the church. Now, I've been gesturing at how Christians can approach biblical criticism and how that engagement can be beneficial. I want to finish by talking about how we can reclaim biblical criticism for the church. And I do mean reclaim rather than claim, since this sort of inquiry began in the church. Uh, my approach uh, consists of three things that I think we need to constructively engage biblical criticism. The first is a high view of scripture. Second, we need a strong doctrine of accommodation. And finally, a view of inspiration that is informed by that doctrine of accommodation. I'll take just a few minutes to talk about each of these, and I'll talk a bit about how biblical criticism can actually help us with this if we let it. Now, first, we need to take the Bible at its word, even when that contradicts our tradition. Now, this principle goes back to the Reformation's call of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the rule for faith and life, not church tradition. It is the final arbiter on questions concerning itself. Now, this isn't to say that Christian tradition can't be informative, but it isn't infallible. Only the Bible can claim that status, and sometimes it contradicts our traditions about it. Nevertheless, as Christians, we sometimes hold so fast to our tradition that we don't let the Bible speak about itself uh, on its own terms. And this can create unnecessary conflicts with secular scholarship. I'll give you a somewhat controversial example that gets some Christians bent out of shape, and that's the issue of authorship. I already alluded, for example, to uh, the book of Proverbs, which tradition often assigns to Solomon, uh, though within Proverbs itself, for example, chapter 25, verse 1, it says explicitly that the book was compiled by the men of Hezekiah hundreds of years later, though it does contain teachings of Solomon. Later on, it also cites a teacher named Limuel, or King Limuel the Wise, again, not Solomon, a uh, recent uh, sort of new view into a translation of another passage tells us that we also have a, a teacher named Amenemope represented, so multiple authors. Um, the same could be argued for books like Isaiah, Isaiah 8.16, 
has the prophet Isaiah explicitly instructing his apprentices to participate in the compilation of his book. In Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 32, we're told that not Jeremiah, but a scribe named Baruch wrote down the words of Jeremiah and similar words were added to those writings. This can get uh, very controversial. I may have lost some of you here. Um, but generally, I would say when biblical criticism asks questions about biblical authorship, it doesn't uh, scare me because I think we could stand to step back and question why do we attribute all these works the way that we do? And are we holding too close to our tradition and not letting the Bible speak about itself? Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to accept every single conclusion of biblical criticism. Many of them, I think, still need to be challenged. Um, but I think it does invite us to ask questions about what the Bible really says. And there are cases where the clear teaching of Scripture actually agrees with what some critics have noticed and not necessarily with what tradition has held to. Now, this sort of questioning goes back to the Protestant Reformation, if not earlier. And that's part of why I titled this section Reclaiming Biblical Criticism for the Church rather than Claiming. Now, if we study the history of biblical criticism, something I didn't really deal with here, a lot of it stems from Protestant approaches to the Bible rooted in the Reformation, though threads of critical scholarship can be traced back as early as the early church. Now, secondly, we need a strong doctrine of accommodation to approach biblical criticism constructively. Multiple theologians, and I would argue the Bible itself, teach us that God spoke to his people at different times in ways that they could understand. Um, I'll share just a few of my favorite statements on accommodation. This is the take by the fourth century theologian, St. Ephraim the Syrian, in his hymn on faith, 31. He has put on their names for our weakness. Let us understand, if he had not put on the names of these very things, he would have been unable to speak with our humanity. With what is ours, he drew near to us. He put on our names to put on us his way of life. He borrowed and put on our form. And like a father with children, he spoke with our childlessness. God speaks to his children as any father speaks to his children in accordance with what his children can understand. A writing over a century later, the theologian John Calvin arrived at much the same conclusion, saying, because our weakness cannot reach God's height, any description which we receive of him must be lowered to our capacity in order to be intelligible. And the mode of lowering is to represent him not as he really is, but as he seems to us. Now, this accommodation meant not just using language that God's original audience could understand, but also cultural practices, customs, and literary styles that made sense to them. Now, with this in mind, we don't need to worry when we find certain contradictions in the Bible, because it was a feature of the culture writing it to use paradox as a teaching tool. We also don't need to be worried when we find strong similarities between the Bible and other ancient writings. That's precisely what we should expect to find. If God was speaking in terms his people could understand, why wouldn't he reference literary traditions they were already familiar with? And this is another way that biblical criticism can benefit our faith. Moving beyond the mere academic exercise of finding literary parallels in cultural and historical settings for different parts of the Bible, for Christians, this research demonstrates for us how loving God was in accommodating his people. 
In this way, criticism isn't challenging a view of scripture as divine. It's actually corroborating an orthodox approach to scripture by rigorously demonstrating divine accommodation throughout it. Now, finally, we need to let that doctrine of accommodation inform our approach to inspiration. As the Chicago statement put it, God didn't override the human writers of the Bible. Instead, I would argue that he accommodated them. God so ordered, prepared, and superintended things that he was able to use human scribes to produce his very word and textual form in the Bible. Nevertheless, he accomplished this by accommodating each scribe's abilities, weaknesses, and social setting. We thus have a Bible that is God's word, written in multiple humans' own words. Theology leaves this process mostly mysterious. Biblical criticism, on the other hand, actually has a lot to tell us about at least the human side of this process, since its primary questions are about those humans who wrote scripture, our forebearers in the faith. It can teach us about the men and women who God inspired to write different parts of the Bible and the circumstances that he was accommodating when he inspired them. So to finish again by paraphrasing Jock McGregor, this scholarship should leave us more amazed by God's gracious work of revelation, inspiration, and accommodation, not less. And I would argue that the more flesh we can put on the human bones of this book, the more apparent is the divine hand guiding those people, working both through and in spite of them to bring his word to them and ultimately to us. So thank you for your attention, because now we can uh, move into the Q&A. Awesome, Tim. Thank you so much. That was really, really helpful, really well laid out. Uh, you gave people everything at every shelf, high shelf, mid shelf, low shelf. Uh, and, and so we were well fed. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of questions. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to ask one question. I have actually many, but I'm just going to ask one. And while people think there was a speaker, we had a speaker who wanted to talk about, uh, he also talked about the Bible. He had less, uh, less confidence than you, mm. and, and, uh, and I, sh I share your confidence, and I'm thankful that you were able to explain why you remain confident and to see that God works through these. But one of the things that he was talking about, and I'm sure it comes up commonly, is that the, the census numbers are different. It's not uh, mm. so the numbers between Chronicles and Kings. <clears throat> It's not a logical contradiction, but it does seem to be an internal contradiction. And mm. so he was saying, so basically numbers are just symbol and we don't really have to uh, take them, you know, you know, they're all symbol and we can't really know the historical aspect of it. Can you help us to understand that a bit better, how we deal with those internal issues? I can talk about it a, a bit, yes. So numbers are a special challenge. I mentioned that uh, one of the contradictions people point out is uh, garbled numbers. So for example, if you look at uh, the length of Saul's reign in the ESV translation, it just gives an ellipsis because the number is so confusing <laughs> that they don't even hazard a translation anymore. Um, so it's, Numbers 
present unique difficulties. I use that as a, a, a sort of setup for that. Um, some of this stemming from that the, the Hebrew language changed remarkably, especially over the course of the exile. And that included that their numerical system changed. Um, and that's part of the discrepancy between Kings and Chronicles, because Kings is by and large a pre-exilic book. Chronicles is a post-exilic book. In the Christian Bible, they're jammed together. In Jewish Bibles, Chronicles is the very last book. So there's more separation. I think that organization is maybe a little bit better for keeping them more separate than we often do. So some of it is the changing numerical systems. Um, as far as numbers as symbols, that does happen. Uh, we have numbers like seven, 10 multiples of that. Um, so things where you get measurements of cities, it's like 144,000, like that's a symbolic number. Mm -hmm. um, or when kings reign for 40 years, 40 years is symbolic of an, a full generation. It's letting you know that it was a long and healthy reign. For censuses, it's harder to argue that they are purely um, symbolic. So the approach that I've heard taken to this that I find the most convincing, that's maybe not the most satisfying for everybody, is that in Kings, we have a pre-exilic work. We're potentially getting pre-exilic census numbers, um, as that's what would be most relevant to the audience. In Chronicles, we have a post-exilic work. It's retelling some of the pre-exilic history, but it's for a post-exilic audience. Um, and it's also sort of telling us, like, this is what happened in the place that you're in now. So the updated census numbers may actually reflect the census numbers of the writer, not of the time that he's writing about. So since Chronicles is centuries later, he's going to give us numbers that reflect the region as it was for his audience, which is actually quite different from what the region was like when Kings was written. Um, so that's the, the solution I've heard to that specific issue. Uh, but numbers are, are, are very difficult in general. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but that's... Oh, no, no, that's good. I mean, it's, it's not that we can always tie a bow on it, but yeah. but uh, uh, I can't remember. The the language is, is eluding me at this moment, but basically uh, insufficient evidence to make a conclusion either way. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a kind of a good way to sum it up. Uh, we, Brad, did you want to add to that? Okay. Oh, different. Okay. So, uh, Yvonne, you want to ask your question and then Brett can ask us. Hi, Tim. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, I really enjoyed your, um, um, your, uh, study. It's really good. Thank you. Really interesting. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts, uh, but the main one I'm thinking right now is, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but back in cemetery, seminary, they taught me that Kings and Chronicles were written mostly in the South and Judea, were very pro-David and kingship, et cetera. Samuel was written more in the North and Israel and was very anti-kingship. And, um, you know, kind of showed David's picadillos, everything else wrong with him in a way. <laughs> and um, they, they kind of come together to bring truth to me. And I see God working, you know, beautifully in that kind of tapestry, if I could use that term, uh, blending them together to show a true story. 
Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Is that true or not, or about North and South? Or yeah, thanks. Yeah, this is actually a subject that I specifically research is uh, the relationship between the North and the South and um, sort of coming together of the Bible. So it's a little bit more complicated in that we have segments of Samuel that are probably Northern. Um, There may just as well be Southern portions there, although I have heard more of the Northern theory that you seem to have learned at seminary. For the book of Kings, it's a mix. Um, And Kings explicitly cites its sources because he'll finish each king and be like, and if you want to know more, read the annals of the kings of Israel. It's a northern source. Or more about this king, read the annals of the kings of Judah, a southern source. So you have a southern chronicle and a northern chronicle, and they're being combined, and we're getting a theological through line to connect the two. Um, But you certainly do see this sort of there's an interesting thread of harmony that's being created from that northern and southern conflict um and often as a result of the conversation um i guess i could give an example from kings and i can give an example from uh the psalms is sort of more where i've studied it but in uh kings for example you get um the story of Jeroboam, the core story of Jeroboam the first. He breaks away, founds the northern kingdom, plants his royal sanctuaries at Bethel and Dan. Um, that's actually probably a northern source. I tend to agree with scholarship that says like that's an Israelite chronicle. And you look at it and there's these uh, clearly marked commentaries. This was sinful. Like he shouldn't have done this. The rest of the account is very neutral. Like he went, he set up Bethel Dan, he created his kingdom. And then at the end, you get your commentary um, that then goes through the through line of the book of Kings. That is the North that ultimately fell first. The South follows after it and having absorbed some of, some of those sinful behaviors. Um, where I think you see this kind of harmonizing is more in places like the, the Psalms where we have both Northern and Southern Psalms preserved. But my favorite example I'll give you is um, Psalm 133, because it's very short. Um, It's how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to to live together. With what little we can reconstruct of the difference between Judahite and Israelite Hebrew, Psalm 133 looks like an intentional mix so that opening line, matov manaim, ahim lashevet kam yahad, how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to live in unity. Matov manaim, how good, how pleasant. Tov is our southern word for good. Naim is our northern word for good. It's kind of jamming them together. And then the subsequent verses do the exact same thing. So it is like fine oil flowing down the beard like oil flowing down the beard of Aaron, but who anointed Aaron was Moses. We have Aaron's descendants become the priests ultimately in Jerusalem, but we have a sort of very brief mention in Judges that it's Moses's descendants who go north and become the priesthood in Dan, one of Jeroboam's um, major royal uh, sanctuaries. And then the last verse, it's like the dew of Hermon, the sacred mountain overlooking Jeroboam's sanctuary in Dan has fallen on Mount Zion. 
the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So they're combining these images, these linguistic things, talking about like finally, like Israel has in a sense returned, like they're accepting the religious system of the South. Ultimately, that's the through line of the Bible, but there's this harmonious uh, coming together that I think is reflected in those, those sources mixing. I kind of rambled a bit answering your question. I hope I got at some of that. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, I'll uh, refrain from asking or to later. Let other people ask. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. So here's Brett. Hi, Tim. Hi. Thank you very much indeed. Excellent, excellent lecture. Um, I have a question about, uh, and, and I think it ties in with uh, the, 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 all the points that you've made, but the idea of... Um, uh, perfection of, of um, biblical inerrancy, is it not an imposition of uh, enlightenment thought upon an ancient book which says and, and, uh, which says and expresses things in different ways? And for us to try and expect um, our particularly limited way of viewing, which is much more analytical and less intuitive, um, is, um, you know, that, 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 that that's our problem, not the Bible's problem. Um, I know Intervarsity, for instance, avoids the, the, the issue by, by using the word infallible rather than inerrant. And I just wonder whether sometimes we kind of have to do somersaults because we've set up a problem. Can you comment on that? Or? Yes, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I decided to use the Chicago statement on inerrancy because I think it's about as conservative as you can get in the evangelical world without veering too modernist or fundamentalist. Um, I tend to agree with most of that statement um, as well, but I think that there is a sort of, I like you said, there's this enlightenment mentality being forced onto the ancient text. And I tried to reference that a little bit in getting at, for example, how I treat logical contradictions as paradoxes rather than necessarily like indications of uh, violating the law of non-contradiction, which I think doesn't even apply um, when we're dealing with ancient Israel. Um, but I think uh, yeah, absolutely. We have the things were expressed differently. Um, a definition of perfection was very different in this culture. Um, and we shouldn't necessarily expect it to line up with our ideas of a text that is perfect. Um, one of the other things I tried to gesture at is especially following off of the Greco-Roman tradition in the West, we tend to think about truth as something that, that is propositional. And we don't really encounter that in the Bible. I don't think you have it at all in the Old Testament. And even though it's outside of my expertise, I'm skeptical of claims that it's even in the New Testament. I think truth is more framed as something sort of descriptional, something experiential. Um, not something that you're going to define in as many bullet points as we tend to want to do in our modern context. Thanks. That's very helpful. And I must say also that in actually hearing some of the uh, um, uh, quotations from the, the statement on inerrancy, 
because uh, I, I never actually read it before. And now I realize that they're, they're a lot more uh, giving than I would think, than I had thought. So it's, it, 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 maybe it's just a semantics. But. It's a lot more open than it tends to be treated. Um, and that's part of why I wanted to use it is to sort of show like they're Christians, shall we say, more liberal than I, that could stand to learn a lot from it. They're Christians more conservative than I, that I think could pull back on some things without um, compromising anything that they're holding regarding inerrancy. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. I want to thank Tim for his presentation. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the more liberal ones. I, uh, I went to school at Wheaton College for six years, and uh, then I earned a PhD at Claremont. So I think I fall into the slightly more liberal category that you were just referring to. Um, <laughs> okay. And so um, I'm hoping, because my degree was a long time ago, I'm hoping that you have some insight to shed on one of the problems that has bothered me since my Wheaton days. I read George Ramsey's book, In Search for the Historical Israel, which I thought was a helpful little thing. Um, and I've never been able to reconcile Joshua and AI because um, yeah. whatever you date Joshua, whether in the 14th or the 12th century, AI hadn't existed as a city for probably close to a millennium. Um, and so um, I was a, uh, I was more interested in literary criticism when I was at Claremont than in uh, Mr. Lim's question about archaeology and texts and so on. And so I'm wondering about my children. How would, how would you handle the absence of a city at AI with Joshua's narrative about conquering it? And the same thing to a lesser extent with Jericho. I don't know if there's been any other archaeological um, work done on those cities. I don't think that the narratives in Joshua are um, are difficult to interpret on their own. But that's always been one of the one of the uh, Old Testament issues that has has been a problem for me. So I'm going to put myself on mute so my dogs don't interrupt you any longer. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I guess, maybe a distinct approach to this that may not satisfy everyone. But I think we need to sort of ask very careful questions about what are the cities, how are the cities being identified in the biblical text, and how are the cities being identified by um, archaeologists or other tradents who mark these. So to take the two specific ones you brought up, Jericho, um, I mean, we go to the name of it, is the moon. It's some sort of city dedicated to a moon god. It's not necessarily going to be an unpopular name. Now, the city that's been identified as Jericho, it's now on, in the state of Palestine. You have to cross the border to get into it. I've been there. Is uh, free writing. So you're correct that that city didn't exist by the time of the conquest, but we, that city has been identified as Jericho. We don't have any independent indication that it is the Jericho that's being spoken of in Joshua. Um, now, to my knowledge, that another city hasn't been identified. 
Um, so that's kind of a, I mean, a case like Clark mentioned where we, we don't really have a bow to put on it, but in any case, it seems like the Jericho that we have found is not the Jericho from the book. Um, because we don't even know if that city is Jericho because there's no writing from it. Um, and it was destroyed well before the account and Joshua is supposed to have taken place. The case of I is a little more interesting because that site, I'm not sure how it's been identified, so I can't speak to that, but at least within the text itself, the city is consistently called Ha'ai, uh, which means the ruin. Now, I tend to be in a school of thought that thinks a historical work like Joshua was probably written after the fact. And so the people writing it are referring to this conquered city as the ruin. Um, and we don't really know what that city is. They don't tell us what its actual name is. Um, it's just referred to as the ruin. For some reason, English translations like to treat it as a proper name. I'm not convinced that it is one. Um, so I don't know that that's necessarily a satisfying answer to your question but I'm not convinced that we could accurately identify what that city is since Joshua itself doesn't seem interested in identifying it other than as some ruined city that was conquered. Did you want to follow up, Pastor Henry? No, I was just, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, PCUSA. Uh, I tend not to bring questions like that up in my sermons because I don't necessarily think that it will be spiritually helpful to the people. Um, but as someone uh, with someone who reads Hebrew and who has a high interest in in these kinds of things, I'm always curious to hear uh, if there's any new information, if there's any new theories or hypotheses. I'm sure that that you you and I could have lots of long conversations about the Pentateuch and the Deuteronomistic history that aren't appropriate mm -hmm. here. Um, but that's always been one of the ones that has um, kind of bugged me. Ever, you know, I was at Wheaton in the in the late '70s and early '80s, so it, it's been a long time since I've been um, bugged by this. So, I, no, I I just was curious in Professor Hogue's. Um, Answer. I, I'm, I'm not interested in, a, in any kind of an argument or conversation, just in the answer. Okay, thank you, Pastor Henry. Mm -hmm. uh, hold on a second, Yvonne. Is there anyone here that has a question? Yes, one second. Sylvia? Hello. Hello. Hi. I have a question about the material culture context of Genesis 3147. Um, Laban the Syrian um, calls the pile of stones that he erected as a sign of the covenant between he and Jacob, the Aramaic Jagar Sahadutha, and Laban, or um, Jacob calls it Galid. And I've always been curious about um, that practice of piling up stones um, and it, whether um, I'm interested in uh, what is known about um, uh, did that happen frequently in the ancient Near East? Was that a practice that was um, done? And just any information about what is known, I'd be curious about. I'll, tr I'll try to be brief because this is essentially what my first book is about. <laughs> um, As you can buy on Amazon. <laughs> 
so the practice of piling up stones, that is not one that I'm familiar with, but it would be difficult to, it would be difficult to distinguish in the material record since piles of stone that aren't mortared would tend to not last as long. But the use of stone to uh, mark covenants is very, very common. And specifically this kind of thing where he's getting to roughly the edge of Padan Aram and Laban is going to turn back. Uh, Jacob is going to continue on. And so we're marking the covenant between the two. This is a thousands of years old tradition of you stick a stone not necessarily on a boundary. I don't want to use that word, but at a specific landmark where you can sort of distinguish like, okay, past this point, it's my neighbor. I need to be respecting, you know, what's what I've agreed to do for my neighbor on this side. It's me. He needs to be respecting the agreement concerning me. Um, but we have this um, all over the place. I think in the third millennium, the sort of famous example is, I believe it's the cities of Ur and Lagash. Um, one of them's definitely Lagash. My third millennium is not the best, but it's one of those. <laughs> they set up a nice stone pillar that includes this agreement. Um, but we get this um, into the second millennium, so more when we're starting to get into the period first described in the Bible. Um, for example, the Pharaoh Tutmosis Third is putting stones up. Um, in Sinai and in uh, what would become the land of Israel, marking like this is sort of the extent of Egypt at this point, and beyond this is chaos. Uh, when we get our first examples of West Semites writing, uh, it's actually in Sinai in imitation of these Egyptian stones, but as a reversal. So like beyond that point is the enemy land, but here in the desert, this is for us. Um, and then we start seeing it in the lands uh, surrounding Israel, um, where they will put up a stone to sort of commemorate uh, an agreement, often between two parties, like we see in Jacob and Laban. It can also be used to um, mark an agreement between a people and a god. Um, but yeah, using stones for this purpose is, is a very common, common practice. Um, there's different thoughts on why that's the case. It could be the permanence of the stone. The stones could be understood as some sort of witness themselves um, beyond having a symbolic purpose that they sort of stand and witness uh, the covenant. There's evidence that in some of these cultures, maybe not Israel, maybe Israel, um, but some of these cultures certainly believed that these stones were people in some sense, and they treated them as such. Um, and so they sort of stood as this like stone bound person that could witness and testify to the covenant. Thank you. We have a question on the chat. Uh, you addressed it a little bit, but how much does biblical criticism take into account archeology span to text versus textual criticism? So this is a really good question and it depends on the field. Um, so as I mentioned, there's lots of different subfields in biblical criticism. Um, this would be one of my criticisms of a lot of work that's done in Europe. Not that it doesn't have value, but there's only a few scholars who take into account any um, archaeology. 
Um, so to give an example, I mean, what we just saw, um, the Gal Ed or the Yagari Saaduta, the monument set up between uh, Jacob and Laban. This is a very old material practice. Like we have it in the archeological record. Um, it doesn't give us a precise window with which to date that text, um, but there's no reason to suppose that it's particularly late, which is probably where many European scholars would put it on literary grounds. Uh, on the contrary, at least in the data that I've found and I've published to this effect, we don't see that practice continuing past the eighth century. Um, so the account at least has to be earlier than that, in my opinion, whereas scholarship that ignores the archeological record would tend to make it much later, like Persian period or Hellenistic period is where most of the Pentateuch goes for that, that wave of scholarship. So it depends on what kind of scholarship you're doing. Um, some scholars completely ignore archeology. span Some scholars use it extensively. I try to use it as extensively as I can. Um, I have colleagues who are more active, like in the field, primarily are archeologists and they're then bringing that to the Bible. I tend to be primarily biblical scholar using archeology, span um, but there's some of us who are using it extensively um, and that can get us in trouble with traditional biblical critics, but I think the data is, is more convincing when you have some archeology span to back up what you're saying about the text. Very good. I do have a question uh, myself uh, because I've, I've been reading um, John Walton, you know, has expressed, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the doctrine of originality, you know, um, this, this touches on this part or the, uh, the challenge of originality that you had in your talk, because Walton talks about ancient cosmologies and that we should read the ancient Genesis text as an ancient cosmology. Um, and, <clears throat> You have him speaking of what uh, is called, uh, uh, the word is slipping my mind, not concurrence, but basically trying to line up the scientific view of the Bible with modern science. And, mm. uh, and that, that's very problematic, that we just need to allow the text to have its ancient science. Um, Whereas other people would say, well, whatever the Bible claims in terms of science needs to be um, held as true. Otherwise, it undermines its other statements. But Walton says, no, we actually need to read it as, a, as an ancient text through that idea of accommodation that he's trying to communicate them to them in the worldview of the science that they know, rather than because if we tried to do it to modern science even, our understanding of science is going to change. So how much, mm. uh, because, I mean, if you took Einstein's or Newtonian principles, it's even changed from that. And so it's constantly a moving goalpost. So how much should we think about its correspondence with its scientific claims and knowing its truthfulness or usefulness, uh, particularly as we think about uh, the Genesis accounts? Because Walton's a near, I believe he's a, uh, well, just as an ancient Near Eastern scholar, I wonder what you think. Yeah, so 
I would say we need to be very careful about, and this this can be difficult, but thinking about what genre of text we're reading. Um, Guy mentioned, for example, like we don't have history for history's sake in the Bible. It's usually doing something else. And I don't tend to think we have science for science's sake. Um, and I'm a little hesitant to say that we have much science recorded. Um, maybe some cosmological assumptions, but I mean, to get into the weeds, the sort of text that's the most controversial, Genesis 1, going into the first few verses of chapter 2. The big problem with this chapter is that it is almost completely unique. There's not really anything that is quite like it. As much as people have tried to identify parallels, they all kind of fall apart under scrutiny or to be like, oh, that point is a little similar, but you're not going to find any account that really looks like Genesis 1. So it's hard to say what kind of text it even is. Um, is it making a scientific claim about the creation of the world or is it doing something else? Um, for myself, not to like add another viewpoint into all the viewpoints on Genesis 1, but in trying to find what kind of genre it may be, to me, it looks most like a festival or a ritual text and listing out days and things that were being made on each days. And I think that reading fits better when we go back to the original Hebrew, because the original Hebrew is very concrete. Um, and the English tends to sort of make aggrandize it in unusual ways. So for example, the creation of the great lights and in Hebrew, it's just their lamps. God made two lamps, a greater lamp and a bigger lamp. And then he affixed them to a metal screen. Uh, and we get like the heavens and the sky. And it's like, maybe it's talking about that metaphorically, but it's describing him building a temple, I think. Um, and that's really the, the images of like, we're supposed to understand all the world as a temple to Yahweh. Um, so I tend to not want to read that as even that the original author was trying to make a scientific claim. I think that he was doing something different in that text. Maybe that's not the most satisfying reading, but to sort of. Oh, that's very helpful. I mean, what about uh, like the firmaments, the water, you know, the, the, it's almost like the, the ceiling, the canopy of the sky is seen as solid as we see it as spatial, you know, or, or. Right. Horus. Yeah, and I mean the you do you have that in other cosmologies in the ancient Near East of this sort of solid screen, but the the word used there is like it's a beaten sheet. Um, like clearly, in some sense, it's talking about the creation of the world, but it's using words that we would use to describe like building a stage in a temple or building a temple backdrop. Like, I think the, to me, even that and thinking about the separation of the waters and the solidness of the firmament is because it's, it's mixing metaphors. Like we're talking about creation and maybe there's a particular cosmological idea behind that of separations of waters in a more cosmic sense. Um, but it's also trying to use the language of temple building to describe it, in my opinion. 
Um, this would be my reading of it. But again, this is another case where it's hard to kind of put a bow on this because there's just nothing that looks like this. It's, it's a wholly unique text, at least from anything I've seen, but people compare it to Enuma Elish, um, to Egyptian texts, and it just doesn't look like those. There's some similarities, but only some. Yeah, no, thank you. There's, uh, I wish you were still on the call, but there was, um, there's a couple comments on our little correspondence here, but there was a guy that chaplain at UVic, he said that there was a, uh, a Chinese uh, student came to his home where he offers meals to the international students. And uh, he just reads the text. Uh, most of them are not Christians. He reads the text and then allows them to ask questions. And this guy is a he was getting his doctoral student in biology or something like this. And the text happened to be Genesis one through three. So this man was just uh, the, the chaplain was a little bit nervous about having to read this. And before this doctoral student didn't want to get into, you know, the weeds on it. He read Genesis one through three and the man said, does anyone have any comments or questions? And the man, the, the Chinese man had never heard the Bible before and he raised his hand. And he said, and he was ready for, I don't know, a battle or questions. And the man said, that's the first time I've heard something that explains all of reality so succinctly. <laughs> so he didn't get lost in the weeds of asking about the science. Wow. It was just something that completed the picture of existence. Yeah. Um, so allowing the text to speak for itself rather than trying to have our tradition confirmed um, may be something to it. Hi, uh, I'm glad to hear what you had to say. I think a lot of us have trouble with criticism because we view it as Greek and late. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, I'm glad to see that, uh, that there's more depth to criticism than that. Yeah, I think that especially the early waves of criticism came about it in a very Western Greek way. And I think as it's evolved, it's sort of pushed more into like, can we actually recover what was the original perspective? Um, and maybe we can't do that perfectly, but that's what we should be trying to do rather than trying to reread everything through a sort of modernist uh, perspective. Okay. Gabby. G'day, Tim. Really appreciated your talk. I would simply like to know, I'm just curious, what's your favourite part of the Old Testament, either um, book or section or genre, however you want to answer, and why? <laughs> uh, that's a very hard question and it's like asking a film buff what their favorite film is um, I mean I just finished a book on the Ten Commandments so that's up there although I'm starting to get sick of it your book or Ten Commandments um, uh, I guess my book I'm just kidding <laughs> um but uh, that's one of my favorites. Um, I, it'll be hard for me to articulate why this is, but my favorite verse in the Old Testament still is um, 
I'm going to embarrass myself by not knowing the verse number. It's 1 Samuel in chapter 1, somewhere in the beginning. But you have uh, Hannah is being abused by Nina and very sad that Elkanah doesn't understand her. And she goes and prays silently. And Eli sees her praying uh, silently and assumes she's drunk. And then she gives this gut-riching answer, which in Hebrew is lo adoni ishak shatrua hanochi velo shatiti yain veshachar vaish poch nafshilifne adonai. It's like, no, my Lord, I am a woman of crushed spirit, and I haven't drunk wine or strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And I think... I love that verse because it captures what I love about Hebrew, that it's a very like earthy down, like grounded language. Like you feel it in your stomach uh, more than you do in your head. And I think that sort of characterizes a lot of the old Testament for me. Um, so that's probably my favorite part still. And that's not necessarily a verse that everybody picks. <laughs> that's awesome and uh is someone else as you read it i'm so assuming even as a critic you're not just wanting to use it as an object but something that is written by a capital s subject uh how do you pro how do you think about reading the bible like how that might edify us in terms of how you approach the bible in terms of um being fed by it, not just critically, but even in mm. your criticism, how are you fed by the scriptures? Yeah. So your question reminds me of uh, early on when Tabby and I were dating, we we're doing uh, devotional reading together. We got to some point in the Psalms. I can't even remember what Psalm it is. And Tabby goes like, well, what does this make you think about? And I was like, well, it sounds like it was written in the wake of the fall of Samaria and it probably had something to do with the refugee crisis in the eighth century. And <laughs> went, none of this is what she wanted to hear. <laughs> but because I tend to approach things a little bit intellectual, like overly intellectually. Um, but I guess my approach as both a critic and even when I'm reading devotionally is I really want to understand the world that this text is coming from, that the people who were writing it were inhabiting. And to whatever degree it is possible, I want to inhabit it myself. Like when I'm when I'm reading, um, this is kind of what I'm getting at with that. Uh, for, I don't know if I stole that from somebody or if I coined it myself, or like repeopling the past of like being able to take, like for one example, when I, teach being able to take my students into the past let them re-inhabit that world to breathe life back into it um, and for me that's what i think at its best criticism can do like make it into something that we don't just read past or we don't just read solely for what position it could uphold or even what practical application it might have but to get a glimpse into like this is a real person or people interacting with a real God. It's a real interaction that happened. And it's something that's been recorded that I can enter into to a degree that it can inform my own interactions with God today. Um, so that's 
ideally how I try to approach it, not always where I end up because I can get stuck in like, well, what year did that happen again? And who was king? And, but. Well, that's, that's a thank you for that answer. And, and we need people like you to help us to see the scenery of, uh, or the settings of these people, because they are real people having real issues, just as we do, but in very different culture, very different types of issues, different kinds of questions. And, uh, and you're helping us make that link. Mm -hmm. So thank you for, for your scholarship in a field that is deeply in need of Christians to be in scholarship. Mm -hmm. yes. So thank you. thank you. Thank you. Is there any more questions here? Yes. Okay. Samuel. Konbawa. Ah, konbawa. Ah. Tojo yorishiku hane hajimashite onegaishimasu. Yoroshiku onegaishimasu. Toshi de Nihon de shinde imashita ka? Eh, to jitsu wa ma 2年間だけ住んでいました。日本で。なんかちょっとでもすごいですね。まだまだです。Question I wanted to ask was uh you know uh, it's interesting how when I came Julia uh, she asked me what do you want to learn what do you particularly want to learn while you're time in Labri and I asked uh, I I told her that I want to learn to uh, effectively communicate the gospel to Japanese people. Uh, while you, you were living in Japan, what were were you able to reach out to Japanese people? And if, if so, what were some best ways to reaching out to them? Because you know, uh, Japan is still considered to be one of the most unreached people groups on the earth, like 0.5% mm -hmm. out of 120 million. And uh, I just wanted to hear your experience. Uh, evangelizing Japan. Yeah, so I have some thoughts on this, but not that much experience. Um, while I was in Japan, I was going to a missionary church. It was actually uh, run by the KPCA, Korean Presbyterian Church Abroad. So most of the members of the church were Korean, but there were some Japanese members. Um, that I interacted with. And so I can't say, well, maybe I can talk some about how I, I reached people, but let me collect my thoughts. <laughs> I think for me personally, coming from where I was, what seemed to connect most when I was interacting, at least with Christians in the Japanese church, for Japanese Christians, not necessarily non-Christian Japanese, um, was highlighting similarities I found between Japanese culture and ancient Israelite culture. Um, I was talking to a Japanese theologian shortly after I moved there who commented that ancient Canaanite religion is just Shinto. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the, the link he started with. But then you think about God accommodating his people in the, the ancient world, and that's the kind of people he went to first, is they're coming out of that sort of religion, like a Shintoist type belief system. Um, and he had to turn that around to give us the Bible. Um, and so I had some interesting conversations 
talking about that, but this was talking to people who are already in the church. So people outside the church, it's very difficult. Um, being there for only two years, I don't know that I had very many good senses of what worked. I mean, one thing that struck has been, I've been reflecting on recently, I was just at the movies watching a Japanese film earlier that was about the theme, theme of it was sin. Um, and sin seems to be one of the particularly difficult topics when you're evangelizing the Japanese because sin and crime are not that distinct in Japanese language and Japanese culture. And so people will respond like, I've never committed a crime, so I don't need this religion. Um, but on the other hand, I met a, a Japanese Christian who said the reason she came to church is because she was reading authors like Dazai Osamu, and she came to the conclusion that humans must be inherently sinful. And then she saw a street preacher and she went up and challenged them. And she's like, I think that people are inherently sinful. What do you think about that? And like, well, we think that too, but we think you can be forgiven. And she's said she had never heard that before, that there was forgiveness. Um, and I heard that from a few other Japanese Christians as well, that it was that idea of forgiveness for sin that really drew them. Um, I don't have any experience sharing that with people myself, but that was the theme that kind of came up a lot. Thank you. Uh, Dan says, is it valid to use biblical verses out of context, possibly incompletely, primarily as an encouragement, such as Isaiah 30, verses 15? This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest, is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, the sort of famous example of this is the Jeremiah 30, 11. And I don't know if anybody's seen the, um, I particularly like the Babylon B take on that. It's like Jeffrey was having a tough year as he had lost his job, his girlfriend left him and to top it all off, Nebuchadnezzar took him into exile into Babylon. <laughs> um, I tend to think it's somewhat suspect, but I wouldn't throw the entire practice uh, under the bus um, because I think like the Bible was written for a specific historical instance but not just that one time, like it was preserved to apply to other people and other times. I think we need to be careful and ask questions about how do we apply it faithfully. Um, so I would be very careful about taking verses out of context. Um, but I think that you can use verses like this for encouragement. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's nine o'clock. Maybe we can allow one question. Is there any one question left now or never? Thank you, Tim, so much. It's been a, a pleasure to hear from you. So articulate, so helpful, um, and an encouragement to us uh, to reflect more deeply. To address our questions, our many diverse and difficult questions you handled with, with ease and grace. And so thank you for that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us via Zoom. It's been a joy here and online. So thank you.